Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition for the last 30 years. It's Rosie on the House. As we ride along this beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, the creosote's still wet. There's still moisture in the ground. It still smells beautiful like no other place on earth. And this is the 7 o'clock hour of Rosie on the House where we talk interesting Arizona people, places, and things. And today, kind of going off of our topic last week in the 7 o'clock hour, it's water. Last week we talked about what happens to the ground when we get four inches of rain in Arizona. And uh, but we're going to talk about the ongoing water issue of Arizona. I don't think if you wound backwards to, let's say, when the Anasazis were here, they ever thought there would be six million people in the state of Arizona. And uh, water is obviously critical and vital to everyone, but something we don't think about a lot. And to talk water this Saturday, we've got two special guests in. First, we're going to introduce Sarah Porter, director for the Kyle Center for Water Policy, Morrison Institute for public policy at Arizona State University. Did I get that all correct? You did. I'm sorry I have such a long title. <laughs> you need to, like, uh, uh, what's that? Shield. You, you need to get, like, the Marvel Comics to yeah, get you some I, superhero I, shortened title that. to that. I'll work on that. What does the director at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at the Morrison Institute <laughs> for Public Policy do on a daily basis? Well, we really focus on water policy and uh, where our mission is to help inform public discussions of water issues that get us to good stewardship solutions. So we're looking at water policy. We're working on getting people involved in the discussion about water policy and trying to bring in facts and historical context that will enable people to have um, good discussions that get to good solutions. Now, I can't even imagine how many people are involved in that. You've got the CAP. You've got private well owners. You've got Phelps Dodge. You have Farm Bureau. Uh, there isn't anybody that's not affected by this. So you're trying to please 6 million people with 6 million individual interests. <laughs> yeah, you could look at it that way, or you could also look at it um, to say that we don't really have a stake in pleasing anyone. Uh, you know, we have a role of trying to bring out facts um, that aren't necessarily always uh, apparent to people. And uh, I'm a lawyer. We're heavy on lawyers. Um, lawyers like to think about how law affects um, how things work. And so we have, we have some, some skills there. And we're really trying hard not so much to please people as to make sure that people have infor information they need, um, data about water, um, information about how policies work, how water rights work. And, and also, I think it's really important to remember the historical context for Arizona. Water has really been the story of our state's history. And we need to keep that in mind when we're talking about future water problems or water challenges. And to talk a little bit about uh, projected problems that could come along, we've got Stephanie Smallhouse from the, the current president of the Arizona Farm Bureau. And your president before you, uh, Kevin Rogers, Steph, has said something I quote all the time on this program when it comes up that Arizona's done a really good job with water because we had to create a solution. Places like California where half the time, you know, you've got dry crops where it just relied on rainwater and there's an abundance of water 
they didn't think about it now that they're in a drought problem they've got no infrastructure but we had to do an infrastructure so we're we're pretty well as we've got a, a good infrastructure for our water yeah um i think that um and you know first let me say that with sarah here i really appreciate that because sarah's organization brings sort of the think tank um, that kind of reminds all of us, are we thinking about these issues from certain perspectives and provides that information? Uh, Farm Bureau basically brings to the table those people on the ground that are living the situation. And, um, you know, certainly we have done a lot of planning in Arizona for the water situation, and we have multiple, you know, we have the 1980 Groundwater Management Act, we have the 2007 Drought Guidelines, we have all these things in place, but you can never really know what the impact's going to be until it's at your front door um, and you're having to decide where the water's going to go. And so right now we're kind of at that place where, where we have to take the next step in planning and decide, okay, if there are going to be reductions because of impend impending things that are going to happen to the lake, how are those reductions going to be taken? And can we share in those reductions? Or is one segment going to fill that reduction more than another? And what happens, what's step one rationing? Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I, there is a proposal that is under discussion now for um, Arizona to take cuts at certain levels of Lake Mead. If Lake Mead declines to certain levels, and there is not yet in place an agreement as to how those cuts would be shared, um, right, right now if they're, if we just let the existing agreements, and there's a whole history of them, occur, and Arizona decided to participate in this proposal without any other agreements, the hit would go mostly to central Arizona agriculture. So that's agriculture that is on the CAP system. That, but, and then at different, if the, if the lake, uh, and we're talking about Lake Mead, which is the reservoir that, that holds the Colorado River water that Arizona and California and Nevada and Mexico share. So if, if the levels of Lake Mead keep going down, there's an agreement from 2007 that says at different levels, Arizona takes bigger and bigger cuts. Nevada also takes cuts, and Mexico takes cuts. Now there's this new proposal that would mean that um, Arizona would take bigger cuts, and California agrees to cuts at a certain level, and Mexico takes cuts, Nevada takes cuts. Um, and if that agreement, which is called the Drought Contingency Proposal, or DCP, goes into effect, then the cuts at different levels would be larger, and they might impact more than just agriculture. That's all to say there are uh, ongoing negotiations that are aiming to share the impacts so they don't all go to that one group of low priority users on the CAP system. And it's, you know, it's interesting that agriculture is the lowest priority, <laughs> which um, seems sort of strange. Because the CAP was, the biggest intent was for agriculture originally. Well, I, well, I would just say that I think that I think that this, you know, the CAP when it was when it was envisioned and came to fruition was planning for for groundwater pumping and how that was going to impact, you know, great regions of the state. But the the role that farmers have played in bringing the CAP and things like the Salt River Project, farmers were instrumental in both of those in both of those um, projects, which now provide most of the water and even some energy for a great portion of the state. And so, then to get to where we are in 2018 
and see that see that a portion of the economy and this industry that was so instrumental in bringing this infrastructure here, you know, some farmers put their farms up for collateral for the Salt River project. And and when it comes to the CAP, you know, in certain negotiations, farmers uh, relinquished some of their rights um, in order to secure water further into 2030. And so in both of those instances, you have you have a, a certain industry that kind of kind of provided certainty years ago for everyone else but now today has a very uncertain future because of their priority in the system and so as sarah said with a tier 1 cut which is the lake mead falling below 1075 mm-hmm. um, under the current planning process of the drought contingency plan if nothing were different um, pinal agriculture all the agriculture in, in pinal county serviced off of the cap would lose all of their water and Pinal Agriculture is about 25% of ag sales in Arizona. And we also, the livestock sector, which is the largest sector of agriculture in Arizona, is almost completely dependent upon all of that production that comes out of Pinal. And so it's really an issue that is very huge for all of agriculture in Arizona. The snowball effect that yes. just continues to compound after that. But I, I would like to get back to something you said earlier. and. It's not quite accurate to say that CAP was de- developed or brought in here for, for agriculture. Totally agree with Stephanie that agriculture has been quite instrumental in um, making CAP viable. But when CAP, when the, the project was envisioned, there was an idea that we were going to grow cities in central Arizona and we needed a big supply of water for the cities. Uh, cities got in when the water was allocated and got allocations. Um, not too long after that, there was an awareness that Arizona needed a supply of water for tribal settlements because there were numerous, or over 20 tribes, who were asserting water claims. And so CAP wasn't developed in the way that SRP was certainly developed for agriculture in 1910, 1912. Um, CAP was developed with this idea that we would have farms, and then at some point, some of those farms would give way to urbanization. And a lot of that has happened. If you look at the amount of water that agriculture is using in Arizona, uh, as a percentage of the statewide water use, it's gone from being almost 100% of the water used in Arizona to now being about just under two, well, close to two-thirds of the water. That's because in part because agriculture has gotten a lot more efficient, but it's also because some agriculture, especially in the Phoenix area, has given way to urbanization. And that was that was in mind in the early 70s when the CAP was being put into place. Cities got allocations of water. What was really important was that it we needed users at the time who could use the water and pay for it. And that wasn't cities at the time because they weren't, they didn't have that many water users. And so cities turned to agriculture and said, you know, we need you to use this new supply of water that we're bringing in that's much more expensive than all the other water supplies. So Salt River Project started in 1910. When did Central Arizona come in? The The, the first delivery, the very first delivery was in 1985. It was, it was, it took decades to get it. We had to win a U.S. Supreme Court fight with California in 1963. We had to get financing in Congress in the 70s. We had to form a three-county um, water district. You know, it took decades to make it happen. Started delivering in 1985. Mm-hmm. 
how long was that designed to last for? And what's the next development? We had the CAP or the SRP and then CAP. Is there another development we're looking at? We'll talk about that right after the break here at Rosie on the House with you every Saturday morning. I'm drifting into deep the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. All right, commercial breaks are dangerous when I've got a calculator and a few minutes to do some numbers. Here's what I have. 1910, when SRP is built, there's 200,000 people in Arizona. 1985, 75 years later, the census was recorded around 3 million. 32 years later, today, 2017, there's 7 million. So each one of these critical points we're at right now, it's doubling. If we keep at this pace in 16 years, there'd be 14 million people in Arizona. And I know they've calculated numbers bigger than that and talking about a whole sunbelt of 19 million just from Dewey to Douglas. Where's the water coming from <laughs> <laughs> to support that growth? And we're looking at uh, you know, critical levels in Lake Mead that rationing would start. Is that going to solve its problem? We hit rations and then the developers say, well, I guess just this 10,000 acres I was going to put 20,000 homes on and make $20 billion on, I'll just walk away from. No, it seems that uh, water flows toward money, uh, doesn't it? So, <laughs> so Water's for drink, a... <laughs> or water's for fighting, whiskey's for drinking. That's right. I'm happy to take a crack at your, your large question, which is, um, where's the water going to come from? And that's to refer you to a really great website called ArizonaWaterFacts.com, which is our water, our Department of Water Resources Water Facts website. And there you can see that our state, compared with the mid-50s, our state has, I don't know, we went from a million people to seven million people. Our economy has grown 20 times what it was in the mid-50s, and yet we're using slightly less water than we were then. So we, it's very important for us to keep in mind that we have decoupled population growth and economic growth from water demand. It doesn't mean that we don't need more water to have economic growth and population growth, but it does mean that we don't have to have a corresponding correlating increase in water. We've actually been decreasing our statewide water demand since uh, 1980 or so. It's for lots of different reasons, but we shouldn't have a sort of instant idea that, oh, we've got to go find more water so that we can have more economic development and more population. We can, we're getting more efficient about how we use water. All of our fixtures and appliances use less water than they ever did. Um, we landscape our yards in a different way. When I grew up in Phoenix, and I think every single household in Phoenix had Bermuda grass and citrus trees or maybe palm trees, people are now taking different approaches to landscaping, more desert landscaping, lower water use, climate adaptive plants. Some of the biggest efficiencies have occurred in agriculture, too. When we do all those efficiencies, we stretch our supplies for more people, more economic development, more crops per drop. In terms of from the ag side, you know, you talk about that population growth just in Arizona. Well, farmers and ranchers around the country are being told that by 2050, the world population will have doubled. And we have to present, we have to produce 70% more food on probably less land than we're doing right now. If we're putting up houses, we're taking farming out of out of production because most of the time houses go over the top of what was once farmland. And so so it's a serious question of balancing that, you know, if, if we're not going to be able to create more water, how are we going to balance? You know, because the other thing you kind of need other than water is food. 
And so, <laughs> so that it's not it's it's not something that we should be that we should be deciding without without that consideration. And cities can grow up with apartments and condos and high rises. Steph, you've been in ag four generations. Your fourth generation. Fifth, my fifth. My kids are sixth generation. So. So and all that family history knowledge. Have you ever been able to vertically grow your pasture? <laughs> I wish we could. There is some we vertical have to grow farm- out. <laughs> there is some vertical farming happening actually and that will probably address some of the world food needs, but you know going back to the conservation that Sarah was talking about. Agriculture, you know, even in in Pinal County, which is what's facing kind of this this re- you know this cutback in the imminent future. They have 85% efficiency, and they've gotten to that point over the last 30, 40 years. And, and that's a great efficiency number for agriculture. They, they've done that through their irrigation systems. They've done that through land leveling. They've done that through lining irrigation um, canals. They've done that through growing GMO crops. They've done that through um, rotating crops, having no-till farming. All of these things protect the water balance in the soil, and they do lots of other things. And so, so farmers are really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of what else can we do to, to be able to save as much water as possible, be the most efficient we can with it, and still actually grow food. And so, um, so that's part of this conversation, too, is that how much more can, can farming conserve and still produce to meet that growing population demand? I drove I drive past Rovi Dairy every Saturday when we're broadcasting at KTAR and they've got you know their signs out in front of the dairy just to, with statistics about how much more they're growing with how much less water and how much less land and that trend's just going to keep continuing that way uh, the efficiencies that we have in our home and in industry are going to change one of the best quotes I've heard was from Jerry Colangelo speaking at uh, Grand Canyon University one time where he said there's Opportunity is in adversity. It's a lot of opportunity. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going. <laughs> is that what that means? It's <laughs> in a very adverse topic, and there's a ton of opportunity here. You said it at the beginning of this segment about water follows money or money follows water, whichever. Because I don't know about y'all. I, my family, I was born in Arizona. My family's from Louisiana. I love Louisiana. My mom's from Memphis. Spent a lot of time in Tennessee. I love both of those. Um, love the Rocky Mountains up in Colorado. have family there. I don't want to leave Arizona. Well, and I think maybe one of the reasons people, I think one of the things people care about with Arizona is maybe the agriculture that you can see and that you live, you know, you live among this food production. I think people care about local food production. I agree. And we'll talk more with Stephanie Smallhouse, president of the Arizona Farm Bureau. And Sarah, I'll get to your title after the break because I don't have enough time. It's awfully long. (laughs) The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. If you're just joining the program, we are joined with Stephanie Smallhouse, the president of the Arizona Farm Bureau, and Sarah Porter, the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at the Morrison Institute for Public Policy at the Arizona State University. And you were talking last segment that our efficiency with water has outpaced our use of water, and that with so many more people in Arizona, we're using less than we were in the 50s, and that looking for new sources of water isn't always the answer. But there has been a lot of projections out there that we've seen. I've seen an article about piping it out of the Columbian River. I've seen an article about desalinated water getting pumped out of the Sea of Cortez from Rocky Point. Is there another water pipeline in Arizona's future somewhere? 
I wouldn't say that there's not going to be another water pipeline, uh, but I I will state with great confidence that it is not going to come from the state of Washington. (laughs) Uh, Actually, Captain Kirk, William Shatner, during the California drought, proposed that very thing as a solution for Northern California, and Washington exploded over this. (laughs) They need their water. It's not available for the Southwest. Um, But yeah, there, there are lots of solutions out there. Um, there is actually an official effort to study uh, desalination as a as a pr- possibility in the future. Um, Mexico and the U.S. are looking together at s- places where a desalination plant potentially could be sited, for example, in Rocky Point or over on the Pacific side of the Baja. The trouble with desalinated ocean water, and this was the trouble with the CAP when it was first developed in Arizona, you need to have a customer base. It's the most expensive water that you can get. It in uh, There's a big desalination plant in Carlsbad, California, and that water is between $2,000 and $2,400 per acre foot. Yeah, Stephanie, what's a, <laughs> what, is a farmer willing to pay $2,000 an acre foot? for? Well, that depends yeah. on how much somebody's willing to pay for a Big Mac, yeah. and I'm guessing <laughs> not enough. <laughs> it will be a long time before we get there. But a big city like the San Diego area might have a customer and does, in fact, have a customer base for that more expensive water. So it, as long as, you know, you don't have that customer base, you don't want to run out and build a desal plant because you'll mothball it pretty soon. So with no real practical solution to getting another source of water, it just... Well, there there are other solutions. Okay. Um, there are supplies of brackish groundwater in Arizona underground, and that water isn't developed because you have to you have to kind of lightly desalinate it. It's not anything as intensive as taking the salt out of ocean water. Um, some cities are looking at developing uh, uh, desalination plants for brackish groundwater so that they could add that water to their portfolio. Um, some cities are looking at direct potable reuse. We now treat uh, effluent to very, very clean standards and some cities are saying, well, then why don't we just take the next step and take that class A highly treated effluent and, and treat it to drinking water standards. So that's another example. There are lots of options for adding to a water portfolio. They're inevitably more expensive than what we're doing now. And I, if I could make a comment real quickly about those technologies and advancements, I think that's one of the things that we're worried about is that in, under this current situation, with having to, to figure out how to manage these reductions on the CAP is that we we jump too soon to to hold on to our water so tightly that we can't manage the shortage for everybody. And so so certain, you know, entities that have a certain amount of water not willing to that's not being directly used. So a lot of this water is being stored, you know, for future years ahead. Um, you know, the consideration needs to be that we are going to develop these technologies and we are going to, to advance and get water, augment our water supplies. And so let's not pave over farmland and be short-sighted, you know, and say, oh, no more water for farms. We're going to put houses there. And then we have this technology. You don't get the farmland back. And so, so we want to make sure that in this process of, of negotiations and solving these grand problems that we don't panic and we don't rush to say, no, we have no water. We have no water to share with farming because we have to keep it. You know, we may, it may not be coming out of the tap, but we need to store it. And, and so that's not really planning for these advances that will come because they have to come. You know, we are always going to be every so many years faced with the next challenge, right? The next opportunity, as you said. <laughs> and, so, and so that's something that, that we're trying 
to, you know, to get across during this process is, you know, let's not panic, but let's not secure a future for farmland that will never mean that we'll never produce food again. And that was a great point that you don't get that farmland back. And it's not practical in a lot of elevations where you might be able to rely on more rainwater uh, for your crop growth and use less. Well, higher elevations, there's a reason there's not farms up there. <laughs> and almost all of Arizona is arid or semi-arid. They're very, there's very little acreage that and, could rely on rainfall for farming. Well, and and also, we can't rely on California anymore. We've seen what the drought's done there for our food supply. Well, and, and also a good point on that is actually the fact that, you know, California is a Mediterranean climate. There's only five on the planet. And, and Mediterranean climates mean that you can produce pretty much almost anything year-round. And so Arizona is on the very edge of that, and of the southwestern states, we benefit the most from that. We don't have the coastal part of that that California does, um, but we certainly have the climate to where we can grow almost anything here, and we can grow it year-round. And so when we're looking ahead to those demands on agriculture in the future, Arizona is going to be a very important place to be and a very important place for production in the future because of the fact that we can do that. You look at what's happening in California. I mean, it's it's so it's it's so sad to me. California provides 60% of the fruits and vegetables for the rest of the country, and the people passing policy in California think they're only passing policy that impacts them. Well, when farmers when fields are going fallow in California, that impacts the rest of the nation at a minimum, not to mention other countries. So so it's really a, a long-term thought process that we have to have. It's like this isn't just about Arizona even at times. I think we, we forget about food security. 40, 50 years ago, a big percentage of household income, something like 30 or 40 percent of household income went to food. And we live in an, in an extraordinary time where it's, it's just a fraction of that now. And we have a very food-secure country. There, That doesn't mean that there aren't families that have a hard time making ends meet and getting the food that they need. But compared with where we have been um, in history, we are very food secure. And that gives us a form of national security. So I I always Mm -hmm. bring that up. I think it's very important for us to keep our eye on food security and that food is affordable. Not, you know, without overstating its affordability, it is more affordable now than it ever was. I think the challenge with any of these augmentation options is they're going to be expensive. And it it's very hard to know when do you start investing in it and develop it so that you do it just at the time when you have the customer base ready to pay for that water. And that's been our challenge with CAP. We asked farmers to be the customer base. Eventually, the, the farmers came back and said, this is very expensive water. We need some relief. And so, so CAP and the, the other water users made a deal and said, okay, We'll discount your water, but you have to take lower priority. And that's why we're at this point now where all the impacts would be hitting Pinal County Ag because of this agreement that was really rooted in this problem that we have of we need a customer base. And I, I want to add, it, we've, we've been talking as if we're about to have a big water crisis, and we're not. We plan water in Arizona on a very long timeline, and we're talking about, I mean, the the DCP and what might happen if there's a a cut is imminent, and it's very important that we figure out our way through that. But as far as, you know, Arizona goes, the cities, we're not on the verge of, you know, rationing or a big crisis or needing to, you know, build a pipeline to uh, the state of Washington and have an army activated to make that happen. Um, there has been a lot of long-term planning and preparation for drought, 
preparation for shortage. Most cities have diverse water portfolios, and so they, they have made plans to stay resilient in that. And that, in, in a way, you know, Pinal County really kind of stands out, Pinal County Ag, as being um, impacted more than anyone else by a potential cut on the Colorado River. And we have, with Pinal Agriculture, is the second largest um, producer of food and fiber in the state of Arizona. Yuma would be the first. And so it's really important to the rest of Arizona what happens with this segment of agriculture. And it's and like Sarah said, yeah, I mean, there the, the cities have, have taken these precautions and they have, have stored water. Um, like I had said previously, it is really more of an imminent loss to agriculture itself. And so it is one of those questions of, okay, because it's not, you know, because it's not a, an imminent moment for the cities and for, you know, you're not going to turn on your tap, you're not going to run out of water. But because of that, is there room to share the shortage then with agriculture? Is there room? Because Sarah talked about that agreement that happened, you know, when the farmers said, okay, we'll give up our entitlement to the cities and the tribes in order for less expensive water. But part of that agreement was a promise. And that promise was, you'll have so much water for so many years at a certain price. Well, that was supposed to be out to 2030. And so now we're talking about, well, you're really only going to have a portion. Well, if, if it stays as if it's being planned right now, they would lose all of that water um, probably by 2020. And so, so that was a promise that was made. You know, So you negotiate, you say, okay, I'm willing to give up my water for less expensive rate, but you're going to give me water for a certain amount of time, right? <laughs> and now it's like, and, and during that time, farmers are investing millions of dollars, right? They've, Pinal County farmers have invested $700 million, $750 million into conservation and best management practices. And all of a sudden it's like, well, you're actually going to have 2020. So that's a scary thing for the farmers. And like you said earlier, uh, it's not only the food for people, but it's food for our food. Beef is a big part of the Arizona ag wheel. And a lot of that that's grown is to feed the beef that feeds us. Beef and dairy. Those are our biggest, that's our biggest sector in, in Arizona. And they depend upon that, that forage growth in Pinal County. And agriculture is one of those things where we got rain and, hey, we've got a little bit of water. You know, that, there's no quick solution in ag. You can't just go plant a field and have food tomorrow for your cow that <laughs> was just born yesterday that can start producing milk Boy, tomorrow. It's a science. <laughs> it's, a, it's a business and a science. It's a science-based business. Yeah. I, I do feel like um, since we don't have the other participants in the D, DCP discussions, um, it's a little bit incumbent on me um, to say that I don't think there is some sort of hostility for agriculture um, people get in these discussions who are in these negotiations that, you know, this is a, a difficult situation for Pinal County Ag. And that's why there are there are 40 people and on this committee that's doing the negotiation who are spending, including Stephanie, untold time uh, in these negotiations in other. And, there are, and these meetings will have an audience of 200 people who care about water and the different industries that use water. What... What some would say uh, is that what agriculture agreed to was lower priority and that now sort of this is the time when lower priority kicks in and that they agreed to that. And that's the argument that some of the other users on the CAP are asserting. Um, and, and they, too, have made big investments in putting their water in the ground um, and maybe developing infrastructures infrastructure to remove the water. So there are a lot of competing needs and considerations here. And I don't think anyone wants to see impacts fall exclusively 
on Pinal County agriculture. And you made a statement about the three primary uses of water yeah. during one of the breaks. Yeah. I think you should share that the, with the, the audience. Top, <laughs> the top three uses of water are hydration, sanitation, and growing food. You take away any one of those, and it doesn't complete the cycle. you, you got to have you're all three. You're, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yep. Okay, well, we'll, t- we'll come back at the last segment and talk about just takeaway. Well, what's the takeaway from all this? We're joined with Sarah Porter, the director at the Kyle Center for Water Policy, Morrison Institute for Public Policy at the Arizona State University, and Steph Smallhouse, president of the Arizona Farm Bureau. At Rosie on the House, we want you to get out and enjoy the great state of Arizona. That's why we bring you the Arizona Staycations. Pick up your car at Sanderson Ford. We'll set you up and your accommodations. Plus, Sibley's West Arizona Gift Shop, Serena's Candy, Coyote Ode Cookies, Sphinx Date Ranch, Cactus Candy, and Arizona Highways always provide some swag for your trip. Win your Arizona Staycation. Register now only at rosieonthehouse.com. Well, hours in live radio are the fastest hours in my life. And I, I, we've got so many unanswered questions and so many things floating around in my head. But what's the takeaway to all of this? What can we do? Well, I would say from my, from my perspective is just the fact that the things that you're consuming every day um, start with valuable resources. And, um, you know, I'm sure Sarah might focus on the, on the water. But in terms of food, you know, food waste, you're wasting water. Um, you know, it's when, when agriculture, it's the consumer, the person out in Phoenix right now driving their car or whatever, whatever they've eaten today, they've, um, you know, that water has, has basically been used twice, right? It was used when we put it in the ground to grow something and then when they ate it. And so just having more perspective about how there are people in this, you know, state <laughs> and in the world trying to balance water with food, um, food production, water for food production and water for drinking are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. But consumers need to be conscious of it and in the way that they consume these things. And the decisions coming down for the rationing... Not rationing. Not rationing. But, but a cut a in cut. the amount of water that's delivered to the Central Arizona Project, which delivers water to Central Arizona and Tucson. And, and you know, I'm going to sort of oversimplify it, but given the circumstances, right now what we're looking at is either water completely eliminated from from Pinal Agriculture off of the CAP, they will still have access to some groundwater, but not enough. It, w- it would result in 40% fallowing of all the farmland in Pinal County. But there are solutions. There are solutions to that. And then those are the things that we've been talking about in these meetings that Sarah talked about. We're talking about how can we mitigate for agricultural's loss, because the loss of agriculture is important to all of us. And so, so the solutions are there. It's just slogging through. <laughs> it's slogging through those solutions that are can be very complicated and uh, so and and we need for Arizona to participate in this proposal for managing shortage on the Colorado system we need our state legislature to pass a bill and so we're getting we're trying to get to the point in these discussions where the legislature would pass a bill and the governor would sign it and there and the leadership of the legislature is in these discussions involved Talking water here at Rosie on the House. Primary, hydration, sanitation, and agriculture. We'll have to break down the percentage of which one of those <laughs> we use. How much of it's, the hydration, it's fascinating. How, how, much little, is... <laughs> how little we actually need is, is really interesting. I'd like to ask you uh, a question, um, and that is, what do you think is the largest irrigated crop in the U.S.? Irrigated mm-hmm. crop. 
Like, uh, is that just like flood irrigated what or just the just most multiple? irrigation in the United States? Crop p- people. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> the answer is lawns, lawns, grass. And, uh-huh. and of course, you know, I don't know how many acres of lawns there are in the valley, but uh, we grow a lot of grass. And um, one of the best things we can do as individuals to respond to these you know, potential shortage and to the existing drought, we're in our 19th year of drought, is to look at our water we use outside. The water we use inside is pretty much captured and reused. About 93% of the water that goes down the drain or is flushed is reused in Arizona. We're a national leader in reuse. But the water that we use on our lawns and uh, trees and swimming pools, that can't really be captured. And if there are ways to reduce it, if you have leaks in your irrigation system, if you're overwatering, those are really good ways to help us address the drought and potential shortages. And all this rain we got in October is great short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's snowpack yep. up in the mountains. Yeah. That, that, that's where that water comes yeah. from. And for SRP, it's largely snowpack up in the White Mountains. So we, we really want snow in these two mountain systems. If you've listened to the program before, you've heard us talking about AMWI, water, use it wisely, watering by the numbers. That's a great resource for homeowners. What other resources on water management are available? Well, um, agriculture is going to continue to try to improve their irrigation efficiencies and um, what they're doing. Um, but like Sarah said, you know, uh, the consumer can go to certain places. Part on the agriculture side, we need people to understand is what we do with that water and um, and how we're trying to use it efficiently. And so Arizona Farm Bureau will have um, videos posted um, coming up here pretty soon. We're going to have a series of videos about um, water use in agriculture and why it's so important to us. And kind of, you know, where does the priority lie in Arizona in terms of water use for agriculture? You know, is it going to be a high priority for people or not? So. And that's your Arizona Farm Bureau president, Stephanie Smallhouse. Thanks for driving up from Sanford. Stafford? Sanford? Sanford? San Manuel. San Manuel. <laughs> San Manuel. I'd like to I say you were one close, of those but... towns. <laughs> Backside of Tucson Mountains. <laughs> Sarah Porter from Arizona State University. I'm just going to shorten that, that yeah, intro fine. for time that's here. Fine. Resources for homeowners? Business what owners? What I mentioned before, ArizonaWaterFacts.com and also DroughtFacts.com. Those are really good places to go and get information about what's going on with water now. And then finally, I would I would second uh, the AMWA, the Arizona Municipal Water Users Association, AMWUA website, where they have really good guidance for homeowners for reducing water use. And that's 14 municipalities in the Phoenix metro area that got together a couple decades ago and put together this watering by the numbers resource, mm-hmm. how to use water wisely outside your home inside your home i don't know a master gardener out there that doesn't hold that as the how to water your plant standard in the area so it's a great resource and even though it was designed by cities in maricopa county it's a universal application people could take to flagstaff down to nogales it's really great if you'd like to listen to this hour again, it'll be available. Gary, how, how fast are you going to have this up on the podcast? Two seconds. Two seconds. There you go. Give them, give them about two hours. It'll be up at rosieonthehouse.com, or if you already subscribed to the podcast, it'll magically appear here a little bit later this afternoon. What a fascinating hour. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you very Thank much. You.